Want to create memories with your family? Do you have a desire to bring your family closer together? Are vacations lacking that special something you want your family to have? Tropic of Candy Corn is your resource for smarter, sweeter family travel. Learn from other families, be inspired, and encourage others with your weekend getaway and vacation ideas. Tropic of Candy Corn. This isn't a travel sales site. It's something new and different. A community to help bring your family closer through travel. Join us today at www.tropicofcandycorn.com. It's free and it's fun. Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Greg Carney, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm fine. Good, good. We've got uh, Greg Carney on the program today. Today we're going to talk about uh, Masonry and Mormonism, some of the connections they share, some of the reasons why some members seem to be bothered by this connection and why perhaps it shouldn't really be an issue at all. Uh, Greg, welcome to the program. wondered if you might start us off just telling us a little bit about yourself uh, so that my listeners get a feel for you. Um, I'm Greg Kearney. Um, I'm probably best known in Mormon circles for having developed uh, the idea that um, masonry played a part in the development of the ritual of the temple endowment, but not the um, actual endowment itself. So I divide these two ideas uh, um, into two separate notions, one which I call um, the message, which is the endowment proper, and one which I refer to as the messenger, which is how the endowment is delivered. Um, I am an active temple attending member of the church. I am also an active Freemason, a life member of Franklin Lodge, number 123, AF and AM in Maine. And um, spent a good deal of time uh, kind of researching not only the history, but kind of how the endowment came down to us from the time of Joseph Smith. Um, that's kind of the short biography, <laughs> I guess. I want to start off, Greg, by talking a little bit, of, and I should say this too, Greg, this, can, this is all going to be edited down. So any, any mess-ups, things like that, those will all be sent out. And uh, we'll clean this up, and this probably won't release for a few months, and I'll even send you a copy of it in case you want to kind of proof listen to it. Um, but anyway, Greg, I appreciate the introduction. I, I thought I'd start off just by sharing maybe an overview of, of why this topic is important, and I know you're aware of this, and, and maybe just for the listener's perspective, oftentimes when a member of the church goes into uh, the temple and receives their endowment, and then they go home, and let's say, you know, a year later, two years later, they're on their internet reading, and all of a sudden they come across information that that the endowment is in many ways that they were unaware of connected to the rituals within masonry, and this seems to catch them off guard. We we have this understanding that the endowment comes from God, and and realizing that some of this ritual Joseph seems to be getting from some other place that is a, a earthly institution seems to bother a lot of members. And I wondered if maybe you would just start us off by by talking maybe a little bit about that idea of why this disturbs people, but also begin to take us maybe into some of the heritage of Joseph Smith and, and how masonry was connected to his family. Okay. I think the reason that it disturbs people is because they have been conditioned to think of Joseph Smith as if he was some sort of, you know, God's own human fax machine um, in which God imparted information to him word for word um, 
without, you know, kind of any intellectual process on his part, you know, that, that these things were just kind of flow into his mind uh, fully and intact. Um, when, in fact, we know from history that that was never the case, um, that that um, the temple endowment developed over a long period of time, starting in, in Kirtland and, and later in Nauvoo, um, and that it not only has it, it it isn't even the same endowment ritual that Joseph knew that we practice today. So the notion um, that somehow this this endowment is this immutable um, re- revealed process that uh, will never change, never has changed, um, you know, uh, is where I think people get in trouble. Um, it's the endowment has changed in my lifetime. It's changed in your lifetime. It's changed in most of the lifetimes of our listeners. Even um, it continues to be changed to meet the needs of modern members. But um, I think when they have kind of this, and, and the other problem with it is until very, very recently, um, and literally within weeks ago, we were so, um, we treated the endowment as if it were a secret rather than being a sacred thing. It became this this thing where I can remember people, I can remember uh, older people older than my generation who would refuse to tell you that you even changed clothes when you went into the temple. Uh, they were that uh, circumspect uh, about it. And and that ended up kind of serving us badly because um, as information began to flow more freely, particularly in the Internet age, um, you know, all kinds of information which were known to historians, were known to people like myself who study this sort of thing, suddenly came spilling out into the public in a way that um, they couldn't handle, essentially. They hadn't been, in, as we sometimes say, inoculated against it. Uh, and so they, you know, I've actually heard of people leaving the church over this issue, which is just stunning to me. Um, you know, uh, things that would never have bothered people in Joseph's day seems seem to completely unhinge uh, people today. So, I think that that is the kind of the the seed of this problem. Um, the other problem is that we, in order to explain it, some pretty ridiculous um, uh, theories have been propagated and sent around, and have been readily accepted in part because the Latter Day Saints lost their connection to Freemasonry when they went into the American West, and so they had no. They had no history of it, so they had no way to judge what was being said. And one of the things that was being said was that, oh, any similarity that there exists between Freemasonry and the modern LDS Temple Endowment can be explained because they both came from Solomon's Temple. Oh, the problem with this is there's no evidence to connect Freemasonry with Solomon's Temple beyond the fact that Freemasons use the biblical story of the building of Solomon's Temple in their ritual. Uh, um, the, and we know from the Bible what transpired in Solomon's temple, what the type of, of temple worship was, which was the ritualistic slaughter of animals, something not found in either masonry or in our modern temple endowment. Um, and so there's no way to connect Freemasonry to the Solomon's temple. And, and so the appeal that somehow these who are connected by that means, by means of antiquity, you know, seems to not to hold up to, you know, to, you know, a kind of a rigorous scrutiny. Right. So in a sense, we're, we're giving bad answers to the question and then combining it with this whole idea that, that it, it is in some ways this connection between masonry and, and Mormonism's endowment is foreign to at least my generation and and certainly those younger and and probably those even a little older than than I am that at least for a generation two or three that that we don't realize this early connection with mormonism and so it's kind of this moment of of uncomfortability as we learn these things i i wondered if you might take us into uh joseph's heritage and the reason i i throw this question out 
when many learn this connection, sometimes the first assumption is to assume that Joseph had been a Mason his entire life, but, but there is some Masonry in his, his family line. Um, would you mind speaking for a moment to that? Joseph Smith, um, was very much a product of, of his New England and upstate New York upbringing, um, in the, um, opening years of the 19th century. Masonry was widely um, practiced, um, it would enter a, it would enter a rather critical decline um, in those years. Uh, but in Joseph Smith's family's case, his father was a Mason, and his elder brothers Alvin and 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 um, Hiram were both Masons um, in New York. And in all likelihood, although we, we have never been able to, to track it down, probably his his male um, ancestors. Before his, you know, his grandfather and great grandfathers and that were probably also Masons as well. Um, and so he grew up in what, uh, could be construed to be a Masonic home in much the same way that I, a, a New Englander, um, grew up in that sort of environment. So in all likelihood, not only was his immediate family members Masons, but probably every adult male he knew as a boy and young man were Masons as well. That said, he himself did not become a Mason until period in Nauvoo. And given his um, rather chaotic life following the uh, first vision, uh, this is probably not really to be expected. He was, you know, driven pillar to post, never in one place for very long, and was by any measure a controversial figure in in um early 19 you know mid 19th century american life um but he becomes a, a mason in nauvoo um he becomes a mason what's called a mason upon sight which is sort of an interesting thing um the masonry is governed by a set of grand lodges each state and province in north america has a grand lodge the grand lodge is made up of all the master masons in that state or state or territory or province and um the they are the highest office of that is called a grand master which is elected usually once every one or two years um it's an elected official and the grand master of illinois at the time of joseph smith becoming a uh, a mason um the grand masters have not a whole lot of powers, but one of the powers they do have is the power to make a mason upon sight, um, which means that rather than going through the traditional process of memorizing all the lectures and repeating them back to members of the lodge in, in a meeting, you're just kind of, they skip that whole process and they make you a mason, you know, right then and there. Um, when Grandmaster Jonas was questioned in his actions by some others, he cited, and one of his reasons was that, that um, uh, Joseph Smith was a Lewis. Uh, Lewis is a Masonic term, actually a French term, uh, meaning the son of a son of a Mason. So he was a Lewis, and so that was one of the one, along with the justification that he was an important religious and civic leader in his community that Grand Master Jonas gave. So Joseph Smith surely grew up surrounded by this milieu of masonry within his family and within his wider community. Uh, uh, many of the men in Nauvoo had, were already masons, you know, uh, prior to becoming affiliated with the church. So he he was he was certainly aware of Freemasonry. Gotcha. So I want to follow that up, and the question that comes to my mind is: We have Joseph's family, even even beyond his immediate family, who are kind of swimming in in Masonry, and Joseph not a member until he uh, until he's in Nauvoo. So we're talking the late 1830s. Would and, and this is maybe a question that would maybe seem strange to you, but but it's a question that not being a Mason would come to my mind, which is: Is Joseph Smith's father, is his brother Hiram, would it be natural for them to be having conversations about the ins and outs of Masonry in the home, or would or would it be or would that be un, kind of a, an unlikely 
uh, milieu that Joseph is swimming in within his own home? I don't think that they would likely have gone into great detail as to the um, ritual, but uh, Joseph was reasonably clever young man, I think. Um, you know, I can remember uh, growing up and seeing my, you know, seeing my father's uh, code book for the ritual. Um, and it wouldn't take, you know, wouldn't take anybody too very long to be able to read the code book. I mean, they're not that <laughs> that secure uh, 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 in encrypting system by any measure um so so i would say you know it's likely that he would, would at least have known that his father or brother was going to lodge uh he would have had some notion as to what what was transpiring uh there that um that said if you look at the endowment you see the masonic parts and the and the parts that come from you know from the old testament are you know which we 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 refer to them as the initi the initiatory section of the endowment and then the endowment proper those actually developed in isolation from one another um what we know of as uh the initiatories um arrived much sooner and before Nauvoo and the Nauvoo the endowment proper the part we think of uh when we say the endowment um came after Nauvoo and and in fact um, after Joseph Smith's initiation to Freemasonry. And uh, so this is important because the, the two parts of the ritual, one really reflects um, this idea of, of an origin in 19th century Masonic practices and the other part, not so much. Right, right. So let's get into that. So let's, uh, in Nauvoo, Joseph implements the endowment borrowing heavily from the rituals within masonry and i wondered if you might just share with this your thoughts on how you you separate in a sense the endowment itself that which god is is wanting his saints to receive by revelation uh, and then also the presentation of the endowment or the rituals joseph used to get that information across yeah the endowment itself does this where it says to you know one of the instructions we get is to stay alert and awake for the presentation of the endowment uh so i would maintain that the presentation is different from the endowment and that the presentation changes over time um and is different in different settings than is the endowment itself the endowment if you think about it um are, are very rather fixed uh religious ideas um chastity um uh, uh dedication of oneself to the gospel and, and these sorts of things the presentation is where we get into um masonry's influence um joseph smith in nauvoo is faced with an interesting problem uh when we visit nauvoo today um uh, we get this impression of this nice literate cultured uh uh english speaking uh community of of well read uh uh people when in fact nauvoo is a town on the edge of the american frontier it is filled up with immigrants uh speaking a whole host of languages um and the fact was that in 19th century America, early you know, mid 19th century, early 19th century, and mid 19th century America, many many men, particularly, were illiterate. They could not read, even if they did speak English as their native tongue. They wouldn't be able to read it. Reading was a luxury reserved for women and reserved for um, men of means. But if you were the you know the farmer or the the millwright or something of that nature the prospect that you read well you know were pretty dim um and furthermore he was taking in immigrants from particularly northern europe so we had immigrants speaking um danish uh welch uh, we forget that the mormon tabernacle choir and this is sometime you know after the nauvoo period the mormon tabernacle choir was originally founded and sung only in welch and that there were whole towns like um, Colville in Utah that were settled by Welch miners, and they certainly didn't speak English. Um, 
So Joseph is confronted with how to teach some really complicated ideas, religious ideas, to a population of relatively limited, you know, he couldn't just kind of write them down and say, here, read this, you know, and expect them to understand it. So what he does is he chooses a ritual teaching form that one he's already seen working because one of the things we do in masonry is we have this this idea of the questions and answers where and it's all memorized and it's all given kind of in rote and so you'll get this kind of idea about um they'll the, the master of the lodge will say uh brother senior warden are you a master mason he says i am and he says what induced you to become so and he said in order to assist myself my my uh the widows and orphans widows and orphans of master uh, master masons their widows and orphans and there's this exchange that's given every time the lodge meets of going through this kind of this ritual ritualistic form of learning and questions and answers and if you think about it that's how the endowment although it's lost some of that it used to be a lot more kind of involved in those questions and answers where people say you know go down and do this and they say and they repeat the instruction and then they they go and do it and then they come back and they say we've done this and then you know that sort of exchange is very, very Masonic. And that's really what I look for more than the specific, though there are some specific parallels between the two. I'm looking at the the style of learning, which is a very Masonic sort of ebb and flow of questions and answers and, and, and an interchange. It was even more so in Joseph's day uh, when every single endowment session was Every action was done by each of the couples. So instead of having a witness couple and, and everybody kind of sitting in chairs, you know, thinking in their mind as if they were the witness couple, you literally, everybody came up and, you know, went through the whole thing. So um, it is that that I, that I see as the message. This is how the endowment is delivered. And it is not necessarily how the endowment has been delivered through the eons of time to the children of men. It's how 19th century Latter-day Saints, who were, many of them were familiar with masonry and understood this ritual teaching form, chose to deliver the endowment. As we have become less ritualistically inclined in our faith, we have peeled away lots and lots of the layers uh, over time so that now we have an endowment which is very different, even from the one I had uh, received, and certainly from the one that Joseph Smith would have known. And I would argue that in in ages past, it probably has, you know, there's no reason to believe that, that, that the endowment in ages past had any kind of direct correlation to what we experience today, because what we experience today is meant to communicate to us today and would it would it have worked for first century Christians? You know, probably not. They probably needed a different kind of presentation. So a different messenger to deliver the same yeah. message. Gotcha. Gotcha. The other thing too is if, if when the endowment is implemented, if the other members around Joseph, which many of them were Masons, right? Brigham Young, Hebrew C. Kimball, other yeah, they were, uh, either they became Masons in Nauvoo or they were Masons prior to prior to even their association with the church. Right. So if Joseph is taking things from Masonry and trying to do it in a secretive, deceitful way, we would expect those early members to obviously catch on and realize what's going on and, and somehow be frustrated by that. But we don't have we any don't of have that, any right? of that. No, they don't. Even even people who were were clearly opposed to Joseph Smith, um, um, Bennett, um, John C. Bennett. Bennett, who becomes one of the you know one of the church's chiefs, uh, if not the chief anti-Mormon of the era. Even he never mentions this. He mentions polygamy. He mentions a lot of other things that he has a quarrel with. He does not mention that. Uh, and, you know, to to the Latter-day Saints of this period, it seems that they are completely at ease with the idea that, oh, yeah, well, you know, 
you know, where it came from and I'm not bothered by it. Or uh, Many of them believed, as many Masons did at this time, did believe that they were looking at some sort of restored, you know, Freemasonry was this, was this apostate or corrupted Solomon Temple ritual. And many of them believe that. I know some older Masons who still hold on to that, 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 that we came from Solomon's Temple, we brought all this stuff with us. And here it is. Uh, there's no, no no historical evidence to suggest that Freemasonry's rituals, uh, which the earliest they date to is the um, Middle Ages, have any connection with uh, ancient and you know antiquity. Uh, but many many Latter Day Saints, many Freemasons of that era believed that to be the case, um, uh, and so. You know that kind of fit right in <laughs> with with their whole kind of world view, I guess that that you know, which is why it likely wouldn't have bothered particularly. But the other thing is that they lived in a world where ritual was important, and we don't live in that world. And that's why a lot of people go to the temple today and are shocked because essentially our church services are more like Quakers, <laughs> Society of Friends meetings, than they are <laughs> than they are. Um, you know, ritual ritual based services were not like the Catholics, were not like the Anglicans. We don't have that sort of ritual uh, worship form, except in the temple, where all of a sudden they're confronted with the ritual. Right. So the next question I want to ask you, and I appreciate all that, the input, because I think, as you pointed out earlier, up until a few weeks ago, the temple was very almost secret. As much as it is, is sacred, and it's, I think what you're pointing to is the recent video released by the church, which talks about essentially the temple garments and even shows a, a picture of them along with some of the ceremonial clothing that we wear, which I think many older members would have been very surprised to see the church discussing that publicly, but more so than that, showing a picture of those things. But but obviously we're kind of coming to grips with what what we feel comfortable doing and what perhaps, you know, are the the real things within our endowment that are to be kept in a sense uh, secret from from the rest it's of the not world. It's so much kept secret because if you really if you think about it, um we don't we don't we don't construe that the law of chastity should be in any any way construed to be a, a secret <laughs> you know from anybody. Uh, what you know we do I think I view it as more as a case of circumspection. And that's one of the things that Masonry focuses on, you know, quite a bit. The idea that we should be circumspect. You know, we shouldn't just kind of yabber up every sacred thing just because somebody wants to know it. Uh, but that, you know, but that said, I I am probably more willing to speak more more freely about these sorts of things than. A lot of people are, but the people that I'm speaking to are generally Freemasons, and they already know a great deal of this. Right. So, and I get this too, right? In the temple, there are certain parts of the ritual that we are asked, that we essentially covenant not to talk about, but that there's a lot of stuff outside of those that we could talk about that I feel like in some way the older generation or or perhaps members who are raised in a more fundamentalist perspective, that type of a home, they would see any conversation about anything inside the temple as being uh, outside the lines. But as you're pointing out, there's a lot of things there that we can talk about. And even and and there are those 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 four specific things happen to also be where um, where we really see. Um, uh, a lot of the very specific similarity between the endowment and and the Masonic rituals. Well, I wanna I wanna kind of work towards wrapping up, and I wanna maybe pose this: the in my time in the church, I, I joined the church 18 years ago, and in that 18 years, when people have been disturbed or uh, f- uncomfortable with the connection between Masonry and Mormonism, they've essentially applied three answers. And we've talked about all three of those today. The the first one, which is a really bad answer, is to just simply say, well, both both have, you know, rituals that go back to the Temple of Solomon. And as you've talked about that, that simply doesn't work. Well, the, wor- you- the worst one is there, uh, and I've heard Latter-day Saints say it, the very worst one is to say there are no similarities. Right. You know, and, and, and that's and- because they simply don't know. You know, any, anybody, uh, you know, reading the endowment and reading, 
uh, and reading the the Masonic rituals, and you can do both, you know, quite easily, um, both online and in any good library, would would readily see. Well, yeah, there are, you know, <laughs> right. So that that's the worst answer of all. Uh, is, um, another answer is that um, that Joseph stole it all. This is the anti-Mormon, and I maintain that's unfair to Joseph on lots of levels. Yeah, and as we pointed out, there's already this idea that other members who are also Masons would have would have seen that right away, and that's not the response or the reaction that they have to it. That's not, you know, that isn't the response, and that's not the response of of early Latter Days at all. Right, and there's so, the, the the Solomon's. They're connected by means of some means of through antiquity. Right, and so you have this this easy answer of tossing everything back to Solomon's temple. Which, as you're pointing out, at least for you and for I think most scholars, doesn't doesn't hold up, doesn't fit. The the second answer, which you've talked a little bit about, is this idea that uh, that there are things within masonry that have ancient origin way beyond you know the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, way back further than that. And in some regard, this appeals to me a little bit, only in that is it is it not true that if we go back. You know, very far into antiquity, that we find different trades using uh, signs and symbols to to let those around them know that they're qualified to do the work that they're doing. And, and does that have any religious origin in it whatsoever? Well, this is where the signs and tokens uh, uh, make their appearance. Um, the but it's not it it isn't in in ancient antiquity, I mean, we don't uh, we don't see this as you know. For instance, you know, the the Freemasons, which are the oldest of these groups, developed these signs and tokens because nobody could read or write, and you couldn't very well carry. Essentially, the Freemasons were were uh, an early form of trade union, and uh, there were three levels in them, and in order to identify when someone came, came into the, you know, into town seeking employment, uh, 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 they would ask them, you know, what level of, of training had you had? And if you could give the right sign, they would know. They would know. And in fact, Freemasons do this in Lodge even today. That's one of the means by which they know. And so this was a method of identification. Now, these kinds of methods of identification are, by their nature, very old. And I'm sure that other religious orders used similar methods to identify members. Uh, uh, the difference, I guess the difference is, and the problem that we run into, is that in our case, our signs and tokens are substantively similar to that which the Masons employed. Uh, in and are substantively similar to specifically 19th century American usage. So, uh, and, and you know, and we don't see that. You know, down the, the signs and tokens in masonry have changed over the millennia that masonry has existed. So, the specific ritual that Joseph is borrowing from is is in no way something that we can make the connection to being an ancient practice, but rather just kind of the overarching theme of using signs and tokens yeah. does have yeah, more it does ancient have, origin. It does have, you know, signs and tokens have ancient origin and, you know, have, have been used for millennia. So that theme can be, but to try to attach a specific thing, and if you think about it, the signs and tokens are there for our benefit. They're not there for God's benefit. You know, right. God doesn't rely on on us knowing, you know, some hand clap to know the will of our heart. He knows the will of our hearts anyway. They're to, there to teach us something about ourselves and and about you know being circumspect and being careful and and honoring our commitments. They, you know, it isn't, you know, uh, you know, there's, you know, this isn't cross my heart and hope to die sort of, you know. Right, right. There's right. There are some members who believe. That when they get to the other side, they have to have all of these things specifically remembered or else they're going to be in trouble. And as you're pointing out, there's, there's more symbolism and, and essentially ideas of how being, you know, yoked in a covenant, being, 
being um, willing to keep promises to God and being able to honor uh, those promises, that's really the deeper meaning of what's going on. And in the same sense that Freemasonry does it, as I often say that the, the Temple Endowment teaches us our relationship to God, Freemasonry teaches our relationship to our fellow men. They're different things. Uh, Freemasonry right. is not and never has been, never presented itself as ever being a religion. Gotcha. Gotcha. For the, for the seeker of truth who's, you know, he, he is disturbed by this. He goes online. He goes into different apologetic sites, uh, Fair Mormon and others. And he's doing it. He's trying to read up. He's trying to figure out why this connection is made. And he may hear members of his ward toss out the Temple of Solomon reasoning and, and he may get rid of that one pretty quickly. And then, you know, to the, the other response you get, in this, what we're talking about is this idea that this ritual has ancient origin. The, the thing they're going to run into though, and this is maybe the toughest question I want to ask you is how do you reconcile this? And you hinted at this earlier when you talked about some early members talking about an ancient connection with masonry. For instance, Fair Mormon puts up about six or seven different quotes from early leaders. I want to read just a couple of these. Uh, Joseph Fielding, not to be con- confused with Joseph Fielding Smith, but this is a, a member of the church who's alive during the Nauvoo period. He says, many have joined the Masonic institution. This seems to have been a stepping stone or preparation for something else, the true origin of Masonry. This I have also seen and rejoice in it. I have evidence enough that Joseph is not fallen. I have seen him after giving, as I said before, the origin of masonry. I want to to read a couple others. Willard Richards says, Masonry has its origin in the priesthood. A hint to the wise is sufficient. Heber C. Kimball said, There is a similarity of the priesthood in masonry. Brother Joseph says masonry was taken from the priesthood. And there's about... I want to say at least six or seven, and there's actually a few others that can kind of point to the same idea. How do you reconcile this this idea that Joseph is t- at least telling early members that masonry is an ancient, uh, defunct uh, form of priesthood that, and I, and I get it, in some ways this is just in the culture, but it almost seems as if these brethren think that Joseph is revealing this from God. How do you how do you make sense of all well, of that? I'm sure they do. I'm sure Joseph believe. You know, I'm sure that Joseph Smith and his contemporaries, because many Masonic authors not connected with the Church make the same sort of historic thread. Uh, uh, you know, 19th century Masonic authors are are not above this either. I'm sure that they do. You know, that they genuinely think that. Um, I don't believe that, you know, history, if you look at it, and remember, it hasn't been until really the 20th century that modern Masonic uh, historical uh, analysis have said, said, wait a second, you know, you can't draw this thread back this way. Um, you know, I think that Joseph and his contemporaries were constantly trying to see a, a, a tie back for everything. Uh, these people were, were they were you know our faith community is called restorationists uh, because we believe in restoring things uh, and and you know be it you know and there's a long history of this idea of restoring things that were lost so I'm I'm convinced that yeah they probably did and Joseph probably was chief among them to to say oh look at this it's really old uh, there must be some connection back to some ancient time you know when the priesthood was on the earth um i just you know i'm looking primarily though at very specific ideas of use of the teaching form and use of very very specific uh ritualistic elements and in that i think that there's just you know, that's just not the case to say that 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 very specific actions have their origins in antiquity, uh, right? Because you right. just can't find that level of specificity. Gotcha. So my thought, and I hope I can word this right. I think sometimes we paint a picture that Joseph, almost like the brother of Jared, where where Joseph is given revelation from Heavenly Father on what information needs to be conveyed and the covenants that people need to be placed under. And Joseph then, as an enlightened person, says, hey, look at masonry. They do a, It does a wonderful job of conveying these things, so I'll use this as a tool or a method 
to get this information across. But if we're going to take the position that Joseph unknowingly makes a connection that really isn't there in saying that masonry is this ancient corrupt form of priesthood because it's swimming in his culture, then we almost have to strike this up to a coincidence, right? That Joseph sees masonry as some ancient ritual and hence, and, and having some form of divine purpose to it. And he's in a sense kind of fixing it or putting it back where it needs to be. And, and perhaps in reality, God gives him this information he needs to convey. And he just by happenstance makes a false connection in this, in, in the ancientness of masonry. But in, in the end result uses a wonderful tool to get that information across. We've, we sometimes think of these people as living in a, you know, as, as living in a vacuum as if nothing that surrounds them had any influence on them ever. Uh, and I don't think that's correct. I, and you can, you know, perhaps God used, you know, directed Joseph towards Freemasonry. Uh, perhaps it was the plan all along. But uh, I, you know, and I can't speak of God certainly in, in, in how he chose to part. But I think it's clear that because we change the Temple Endowment today to meet our modern needs, that the ritual of the endowment, the method, essentially, the the messenger of the endowment, uh, is something that is used in different, you know, in different times, in different ways. And, you know, that Joseph may have thought he was, rest- you know, restoring something from dim antiquity. And, and in some senses, he has it, particularly if you look at the initiatories, they certainly hearken back to the Old Testament. But, you know, but in other ways, uh, you know, it reflects a very modern in, you know, today, a very modern thing. We do it in film. We don't do it with live actors. We, you know, uh, we have a much shortened version of a much longer what was once a very long uh, ritual. Uh, This is just how, you know, we operate, uh, you know, as humans and how we teach this. Uh, Right. uh, No, I, I appreciate that. And in his day. You know, he looked and he saw a very effective teaching method and he used it. And someone, you know, there were people who said, hey, you know, what about this? And he said, oh, well, it came from antiquity. Uh, but, you know, modern historical analysis of Freemasonry, you know, those, those rituals, those things that are so similar to the endowment actually didn't enter into Freemasonry until fairly late after the Middle Ages. Uh, you know, not until the... Um, Sixteenth uh, and seventeenth centuries that that they that those ritual elements codify themselves into a, into what we know today as the Masonic ritual. Does uh, does Masonry have any other influence on Mormonism outside the temple? I mean, are there other things that are going on in our our churches? history or theology that Masonry seems to have an impact on? Masonry had a huge impact on. Um, 18th and uh, particularly 18th and 19th century America as a as a whole. Many of the fr- framers of the Constitution were Masons. Masonry represents kind of the first ideas of democratic elections as opposed to the divine right of kings. Um, much of the world we live in is connected back to this time and we can see it all over the place we see it on the back of our currency we see it in the street layouts of washington dc uh, we see it in the ritual of laying cornerstones uh, on in our in our buildings both civic and religious there's just mounds and mounds and mounds of freemasonry just kind of oozing through our anglo-american culture as it as it were and so yes we see it what do we do when we go in and we we go into church and we sit down and the bishop stands and says i'd like to call sister smith to be you know a primary chorister or whatever you know uh you know all those who can sustain sister smith in this and what happens everybody raises their hand they're usually they're right and it used to be Among older members, this was a real fetish. You know, you only took the sacrament with your right hand. You raise your right hand to a square to indicate this. This is a direct reference. If you've ever been in court, you've seen it done. You know, you put your hand on the, you know, left hand on the Bible, right hand up to the square, and you 
swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Ever wonder why we do that or why we, why this business of right arms to the square is so prevalent in our culture? Right. You know, it's because of Freemasonry. And the reason was that in Masonic jurisprudence, which predates you know, modern European jurisprudence or Anglo, you know, Anglo common law, which we use in this country, in order to give testimony, you had to be an adult. And in in order to, it, it, there are three degrees of Freemasonry, the end apprentice, the fellow craft degree, and the master mason degree. The end apprentices were all young boys. They were apprentices. The fellow craft degree were no longer considered to be children or apprentices, they were considered to be full-fledged adults. And so we give the sign of the fellow craft degree of Freemasonry. Gotcha. So it's, it's a sign of an adult. It's a sign of an adult. It's a sign saying, I'm an adult because I know this sign. Gotcha. <laughs> you know? And so all through our culture and all through our church culture, because we're, you know, our church culture is heavily influenced by you know, Anglo-American culture, we see these sorts of things. Everybody sits in church and they do it and they don't, you know, I kind of smile because I know, oh, well, this is this, this old indication of I'm an adult, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's kind of this cultural legacy we acquired from the Freemasons. Gotcha. I, uh, maybe just as a little side note, I live in Sandusky, Ohio, and, uh, our, our streets were designed by a mason. There's a historic plaque in our downtown and several of the streets formed together right in the center of the city to form a compass and a square, which, yep. So it's a pretty, pretty applicable, at least to, to me and where I'm at and, and the influence that it's had in our culture. I, I wanted to wrap up with one last question, which is, I think, maybe drawing all of this to a close is to ask you what kind of being both a Mason and we're talking today with Greg Carney, uh, who's both a Mormon, an active faithful Latter-day Saint, uh, and also a Mason. And what influence has being both of those and, and kind of the intertwining of those, how have those together helped your testimony uh, of the gospel? Whereas someone maybe just being a Latter-day Saint would have things one way, but your perspective would be a little different. I think it helps in seeing Joseph as a real flesh and blood person. Um, I think there's a tendency in the church to make Joseph Smith into some, this strange sort of cutout. You know, he's a he's a kind of a cutout character. Doesn't really have there's no flesh and blood to him. He's a you know. <laughs> He represents, he's taken on all this representation of stuff, but he isn't really a person. It's nice to go to the, to the lodge and take part in something that Joseph Smith did himself. And that really hasn't changed significantly since Joseph's day. And to kind of see the world through Joseph's eyes. Um, it's nice to be able to go, when I go to Nauvoo, I always try to get I always try to talk my way up into the third floor of the of the lodge hall in Nauvoo, the uh, the re reconstructed lodge hall in Nauvoo, because that's where the rituals were done. Um, the the tour guides always tell us, "Oh, we know they had dances up here because of the circular wear patterns on the floor." Well, geez, I hate to tell them this, but that's not why <laughs> the circular wear patterns on the floor of the third floor of that building exist. Exists because they were doing the ritual, and the ritual involves walking in circles. Uh, but it's nice to be able to go there and to, you know be able to stand in the spot I've held. The only office I've ever held in a Masonic lodge has been that of chaplain. That's the same office that Joseph Smith held. So I can go and I can walk into that room and I can walk up to a particular spot on the floor and stand there and say, I am standing on the very spot that the prophet Joseph stood on because I know Freemasonry and I know where those spots are on the floor. Then I can walk around and I'm standing where Hiram stood. I'm standing where Porter Rockwell stood. I have, it gives me at least, Greg Carney, and I come from a very old Masonic family of many, many, many generations. It gives me a tie back to my ancestors, to Joseph and his ancestors. It allows me to see him as a whole person, as a man who of great talent, a man of great mistakes, a man of great um, ability, a man who sometimes was self-centered, was sometimes 
totally committed to the welfare of his people. He was complex. He was multifaceted. He was a human being like all the rest of us. And I think sometimes without that, without Freemasonry and my view of him and his contemporaries that way, we lose, it's easy to kind of lose sight of them as real people and they become kind of icons. Right. No, I appreciate that. It makes it real for you. I uh, I just want to thank you, uh, Greg Carney, for being on the program today. Uh, I hope that listeners, if anybody's out there who is who is bothered by this connection, I hope this interview will be a relief to you. That that this that there's nothing really substantial in this whole the whole reading and understanding of this issue. That really, when we get down to to brass tacks, that should be bothersome. Greg Carney, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, and uh, I wish you the best. Thank you. Say what they will now you say what